Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Sam Schwartz is known as Gridlock Sam, the man who made traffic sexy. He started his career in traffic driving a cab. Now he's one of the world's most renowned traffic engineers. He designed the transportation plan for the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, the routes around the construction sites at the World Trade Center, and engineered a trolley system for Aruba. He also was a former New York City traffic commissioner during the 1980s. He chronicles the ever-changing parking rules of New York City and assorted other traffic issues on his website for PBS, the Sunday Daily News, and several other New York City weekly newspapers. Sam, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. If I didn't ask this question, I'd get killed. Everybody asks the same one, so give me the real, comprehensive, real, real story of how Sam Schwartz became known as Gridlock Sam. I've done some research on this, by the way, so I'm warning you. Okay, well, it's a long story. And first of all, my background is as a physicist. I uh, knew nothing about traffic. I, the reason I became a physicist is I had a brother who was a physicist, and he was the only one that I knew that went to college, graduated college, and I decided to follow in his footsteps. Brooklyn College? And I went to Brooklyn College, and uh, he went to City College, then he went to Brown University, and then he, he, where he got a PhD. And when I was a senior in college, and it was the 1960s, uh, he was a professor at MIT, and I went to visit him to talk about colleges, what, what graduate schools I should go to to get my PhD. And he broke the news to me, not gently at all. He said, you're 20 years old and you haven't been discovered yet. At best, you're going to be a mediocre physicist. It's going to take you seven years to get your PhD at some obscure university. And then afterwards, you'll be studying the 27th electron, the spin on the 27th electron of a copper atom. Is that what you want to do with your life? Oh, my goodness. Tell me the rest of that. Yeah. So the bottom pretty much fell out and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And he said, well, what do you like? And I was a dumb 20-year-old kid and it was the roaring 60s. And I said, I don't know. And then he said, tell me what you like. I said, I like parties. I like girls. You know, he said, get serious with me. What do you like? And then it kind of hit me and I said, cities. And he lived in the suburbs. He lived in Lexington. And I was a city kid that hated the suburbs because they stole my Brooklyn Dodges. They stole my best friend, Freddie, my best friend, Barry, my girlfriend, Shelly. They all moved to the suburbs. This is all, getting to be terrible. That's, all I, my a siblings. whole confession right here. All my siblings moved to the suburbs. So I said to him, I like cities and I, I like inner cities and I, I like how they work. And he was the one that thought about that. He goes, hmm. You know, you're not bad in math and science, not good enough to be a physicist, but maybe you're good enough to be an engineer. Or a cab driver. Or a cab driver, So, so which I had been doing, which I didn't even make the connection yet. And so he said science and math and cities, and he put it together, and it was like a scene out of The Graduate where the guy whispers plastics. And he whispered to me, traffic. 
Just and like just, just like that. that. And so there was a program at MIT in traffic. There were a few other programs around the country. I I got a fellowship to the University of Pennsylvania, and I went from being a mediocre physicist to a star traffic engineer and transportation engineer. Did you drive a cab in uh, Boston? Uh, no, no, I drove a cab uh, in New York City, in Brooklyn, in Manhattan. That's where I cut my teeth in the late 1960s. What did you learn there? Well, what 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 I learned first of all was there was some racial. Lessons. I, I drove a yellow taxi, and this was the heyday of the riots in the 1960s. And it was just when yellows decided to abandon the poorer areas, which tended to be the black areas of Brooklyn and La- and almost all of the Bronx. Bedford-Stuyvesant, Bedford, Harlem, Stuyvesant, Harlem, South Bronx. And, and what I found is, hey, I can make a living just driving through those areas because I was only, the only yellow in sight. And also, the poorer the people were, the better they tipped. Explain that. Well, you know, you, you, you get the business person in Manhattan, and I drive in Manhattan, and I do the fares, and they're very carefully calculating that 15% tip that they might give you. And remember, a fare at those days was $2.35 or two fifty. So 15 cents might be, 15% might be 30 or 40 cents that they would give you. But it meant something. It added up. At the end of the day, but if you had that same two fifty fare in Brooklyn, a person would give you three dollars and tell you keep the change. So I, I preferred driving in Brooklyn, although I, most of my fares ended up in Manhattan sooner or later. When did Gridlock Sam become Gridlock okay. Sam? So the, when I uh, I went to Penn and I got a um, a master's in civil engineering with a major in transportation. Came back to the city of New York. I was an environmentalist. I thought I would work for the transit authority. That was my dream job to solve the problems of transit. And I couldn't get a job with the transit authority. So you actually own the tra- you owe the transit authority for making you gridlock salmon. Yeah, yeah, in many ways. And so I got a job with the traffic department, and I felt I was sleeping with the enemy because I was really into fewer cars, not more cars. And uh, I began working on some great projects on the John Lindsay. Mayor, mayor John Lindsay. Time, mayor John Lindsay. And we had a plan to close off Madison Avenue, create the Madison Avenue Mall. We had the, the plan which finally got implemented in Times Square to close off Times Square. We also had something called the Red Zone. And we had a uh, an area of Midtown Manhattan where cars were to be banned. So it was a great time to be working for John Lindsay. Not that he knew who I was. I was a lowly guy in the traffic department. But it was it was a great period of time. And so I worked in the traffic department. And I kind of moved up through the ranks and worked with an old-time traffic engineer named Roy Cottom. And Roy was a real car guy and a suburb guy. And I remember at one point he was trying to explain me to other people. And he said, you got to understand Sam. Like he's really going behind the the uh, psychology of how I was. First of all, I didn't look like anybody there. I had long hair. He said, Sam rides the subway. And that explained things because the traffic engineers all drove Cars everywhere. They were all suburbanites telling us uh, how to how to get around. That's right. That's right. And so I was working with Roy on a lot of John Lindsay's plans, and we talked about the grid system 
the grid system of Midtown Manhattan. And we said, well, if we close this street, if we make this change, well, we're going to lock up that intersection. And then if we that locks another intersection, and soon the whole grid would be locked. So we just used the word gridlock as kind of code between us. Just a few traffic engineers in the traffic department, and nobody wrote it down. A couple of guys called gridlock. Yes, and that was it. And uh, in 1980, uh, there was an impending transit strike. And it was more than impending. It was looming. We knew what was going to happen. Everybody was predicting it. It was like when you hear precipitation probability 90%. You better take your umbrella. Well, we, we kind of knew that there would be a transit strike. And at that point, I was an assistant commissioner with the Department of Transportation, and I studied the 1966 transit strike when John Lindsay first came into office, and it was a disaster. The city ground to a halt. I said, we could do better. And the problem with the 66 strike was they gave it over to the police department to run the city. And I said, hey, we can use some science here and some engineering, and we could take the reins, but how can we take the reins if, you know, against the police department, going up against the police department is almost impossible in the city of New York. Back then. Back then. So, and, e and even today, I can tell you, it's still tough. So we decided to put something together, which I called the grid-lock prevention plan. And the intent was to get people's attention to it. And that they would say, what is this thing they're worried about called grid-lock? Uh, we better find the people who know how to unravel that. And so I was vaulted from a fairly low position to suddenly be the chief architect of the city's plan to deal with the transit strike. And you also won the attention of uh, William Sapphire of the New York Times, who, who wrote a column about you on language. Uh, that's right. So so the word... The late William Sapphire. The late William Sapphire and, and the word... Gridlock, the way I wrote it, was grid hyphen lock. And soon the word was heard by reporters during the transit strike. And there was a fellow named Gene Connell, who was part of the whole transit strike team, who said, don't worry, it will never happen. And that's the sure recipe to put it on the front page. And that's gridlock. the story. That's the story. That's the, the story beginning of the, the story gridlock. of Gridlock Sam. That's You're right. listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO-FM 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest, in case you haven't figured it out by now, is Sam Schwartz, known to his multitude of fans as simply Gridlock Sam, perhaps one of the most visible traffic engineers in the world. Uh, that means you, Sam. Thank you. Uh, when the, I just was thinking, when the president comes to town and they call it a, a Gridlock Day, do you think it's sort of a holiday named after you? Well, well, the whole concept of gridlock alert days uh, did come from me. And the way it came from me was a little bit accidental. I was, became traffic commissioner in 1982 after that successful well, you haven't, time. You haven't answered the question. Well, does it become a holiday? Yeah. Do you feel yeah. it's a holiday for you? Well, for me, it's it's like great news. It's easy for me to write my column when the president is coming to town. Let's see. I'm going to quote you. It says, uh, I get a tingle every time I hear that the president's using the word gridlock. No, every time I hear the president use the term gridlock, 
It's wonderful when I hear that. Is that, uh, that uh, accurate? Oh, absolutely. When it, when I'm You're watching this, this, the Your state. Your beard the, is getting yes, darker. Yes, uh, When I watch the uh, State of the Union address and I hear the word gridlock was there and here are all these people writing words together and that word makes it and it makes it almost every time. And almost every major speech that an elected official has has the word gridlock in it. Does your family, uh, is your family impressed by all this? No, no. No? They just think, hey, oh, it's, gridlock it's, it's dad or it's now grandpa. and Grandpa you know, gridlock? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although my grandson who's three says uh, whenever he sees a traffic jam, let's get grandpa. He'll solve the traffic jam. <laughs> and do you? Uh, usually not. It's something I used to do. Does anybody else call you a Gridlock, or they just call you Sam? I mean, is, is that is it inappropriate or? Um... No, no. Everybody calls me Gridlock Sam. If I'm walking down the street, people yell out, "Hey!" Oh, they, they recognize Sam. you then. Oh yeah, yeah. There are a number of people, particularly Brooklyn. Uh, I think the Daily News has a big readership in Brooklyn, and I think that uh, I, I get recognized a lot. What do they tell you? What do they say to you? Well, you are know, they well, mad because you know because well, they, well, they well, there have been a few funny stories. One time I was. I, it was actually in the middle of a really big snowstorm, and I was wrapped up, and you could barely see anything in except my eyes. And I'm walking down the street, and I pass somebody, and then I hear the person who I just passed yell, Is alternate side parking suspended tomorrow? So people recognized me by my eyes. That was the only thing that was showing. You ever get it wrong? Well, if I ever get alternate side parking wrong, I'm in trouble. And a couple of – I never got it wrong, but my editors did. And boy, did At I the get Daily hate News. Mail. Yeah, yeah, many years ago. It's been quite a while. I've been writing 25 years for the Daily News. But well, in the early happened? days – Tell us. Yeah. Tell them. Uh, Tell hate, everybody. Hate mail. Oh, people got tickets because Gridlock Sam said alternate side parking was suspended. And it wasn't. So, and it wasn't. And so I took over – I told the editors I don't want them to have any control over that line. I control the line that says whether alternate parking is suspended or not. Uh, I'm just thinking about what it was like when you were a cab driver and then you went to become this city commissioner. What did you use from your time in the cabs to your time as a commissioner to what you're doing now? You're in seven cities, right, all over the place. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, all, we're all across the country. And even around the world, we, we do some work. What did you learn? What do you think people should know? Well, well, first of all, what a tough job it is to be a cab driver. It really is. It's, and I was driving in those days. Those were pretty lousy cars. And you dro drove with uh, both feet, one on the brake continuously and one on the accelerator continuously. And, uh, you know, you try to, to do your best. Uh, the, the science of being a cab driver is to get a fare and then get rid of your fare as quickly as possible. And there are so many people that just say, well, why don't we put up some taxi stands and that'll solve the problem. But cab drivers will go where there are passengers. Although the whole calculus is changing now with Uber and Lyft and Via and other services that are out there. So I don't know what the taxi industry is going to look like in a few years. I wonder what it would be like if um, you were driving today and you had to dodge a pedicab, a bike going the wrong way on the street, 
um, and that seems to be the the latest thing. I know that you're a, you're a uh, bicycle bicycle person, as I used to be, because it's more dangerous than it's ever been. The pedicabs, the cars going through lights, the um, the wrong way. That I don't understand that. Why is that happening? Well, well, first of all, everybody, would, whatever year it is, says this is the most dangerous year. The reality is. Uh, we have the fewest traffic fatalities than we've had in in perhaps a hundred years. Fatalities, we, fatalities does not include people who break their arms, break their legs, wind up in yeah, emergency yeah, rooms. Yeah, wind yeah, up. fatalities, but even serious injuries and uh, so many different reasons for that. And part of it is the cars are much safer, and cars do alert you before you're about to hit somebody. They're Great warning systems, and we're going to see more of that. There's been some good engineering done by the DOT, so that's part of it. Uh, enforcement, we now have some automated enforcement, which has been shown to work. So there are some things that work. But nonetheless, the perception, I think one of the biggest things nowadays is the perception of bike riders. Now, a bike rider in 1980, if I was proposing bike lanes, which I did, what would happen, what that meant to a lot of people and what they heard were black teenagers are coming into your neighborhood and they're going to steal your pocketbooks and your wallets. And so there was so much pushback to do bike lanes in 1980. Today in 2015, a bike lane means you're being gentrified and it means the hipsters are coming to town and it means people will be riding the wrong way. And we have far more bike riders than we ha- have had in a very long time. I have to tell you, I drove down from 93rd Street today, and he's looking at me saying, why are you driving a, why are you driving a car? And I counted seven, seven different bicycle riders going through red lights. One almost hit me as I got out of a car. And no one was getting a ticket. There were, there were police officers everywhere. There were traffic um, folks giving out tickets for parking, but none of those people, I mean none of them, were, were pulled over and there were police all over the place. Why yeah. is that allowed to happen? Now, you, you talk to all those people at City Hall. What are they telling you? Well, I know what goes on at City Hall. What goes on at City Hall, and it's not just the City Hall, is is if you think the mayor is really in charge of the city, uh, you're mistaken. It's the Office of Management and Budget and it's dollars and cents. And the Office of Management and Budget measures those parking tickets because those parking tickets are hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and the revenue from from a bicycle ticket, which takes a long time to write, uh, half of that revenue goes to the state and only half comes to the city. So from an investment point of view, not looking at, at hazards and other reasons, the Office of Management and Budget will pay for loads of traffic agents, but will not pay for cops to write tickets to bike riders going the wrong way. And the cops know. Well, the, you know, the police commissioner, he, he has a finite budget. He knows that some of, some of his people are dedicated to a whole host of mandated tasks. Some of them are to control traffic at various locations that have been set many years ago. He has those posts. Beyond that, he doesn't have the flexibility of 35,000 people. He has the flexibility of a few hundred people that he could move around into doing traffic tasks. And that's not why a lot of People went into the business of becoming cops. I interviewed a woman uh, by the name of Nancy Gruskin oh, about a year ago, and she told me the story of her husband walking across West 43rd Street and hit by a bicycle delivery man going the wrong way. And I, 
I keep thinking about that all the time. And I, I hear from doctors, by the way, people I know about what I was trying to get at before. All these people are in accidents simply because they're violating the law. What's the difference? I mean, how could you equate in any way giving out a parking ticket to work to, for someone who's just been killed? That's, that's exactly the problem. It's how government works. So when, when the transportation commissioner or the police commissioner says, I want 10 dedicated people to write tickets against bike riders, they will weigh it against a whole host of other things. So the police department in the latest budget got a whole bunch of vests and the fire department got some, some of its needs filled as well. But if you were asking to get more people to write tickets to bike riders, I don't think that you would be received at uh, by the budget office, and it's seen as a losing proposition. Should there be more enforcement? Yes. So what I propose is that we take the ticket out of being a moving violation where the money goes to the state and there's little city incentive, and we have the money go to the city and so that the city does get that money and the Office of Management and Budget then funds a certain number of people that are dedicated to bicycle enforcement as well as vehicle enforcement. But certainly we should have about 10 people around Midtown Manhattan just clamping down on wrong way cycling. This is uh, 2015. I really shouldn't mention that because it kind of dates the program. But I'd say two years ago, people were paying attention, looking, stopping at red lights, and all of a sudden the delivery people began to just drive up and down. They drive up and down the wrong way all the time. And at about, I noticed about a year ago, I was driving up 93rd Street going west, and there was a guy on a, on a bicycle heading straight for me with a kid behind him. And I, you know, I, I waved at him, pointed out it was a one-way street, and he gave me a finger. And I've been getting a lot of fingers lately. Um, why can't they stop that? That would seem to me if people started obeying the law, then this thing would work. I used to ride a bike. I wouldn't do it anymore now. The car is much safer. Yeah, there there are bike riders that set terrible examples for lots of others. And perhaps the majority do run red lights. Going the wrong way is the violation that I would really clamp down on. And that's the one that causes the most problems. You're looking to the right and a bike rider is coming at you in the left. A car almost never goes the wrong way. But you're still. But many, if I go the wrong way, there's a, I could see those two lights going right behind me and saying pull over. Uh, oh, for sure. And, and they and, should be doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and for sure. And also many more people are killed after being hit by cars than hit by bikes. Not to say that we shouldn't enforce both. We should be enforcing both. Well, I want to tell the world that our guest on this conversation with Alan Walper is Gridlock Sam, explaining all about gridlocking. Known to his family and his friends as Sam Schwartz, an expert on New York's often impassable streets and subway crowds. Subways, to uh, abuse a cliche, are a mess. Do you have any ideas on that? The transit system is uh, so ubiquitous. It's one of the best transit systems in the world. It does need an infusion of money to do some of the very basic maintenance. Tom Prendergast is a real seasoned pro. He's the MTA chair. He came up with a $33 billion program over five years, and we need every one of those dollars. In fact, I think he's on the low end. And he has identified about $15 billion, uh, meaning that there's a gap of more than half 
the money, $16, $17 billion gap. And the plan that I came up with is uh, let's be fair about how we charge people to drive. And right now we're charging people a lot of money at the Throgsnick Bridge, the Whitestone Bridge, the outer bridges of New York City that have nothing to do with the Central Business District. And every time the Central Business District, meaning Manhattan South of 60th Street, needs more money for the transit system, we raise the tolls on those bridges. Yet you can't take a subway across those bridges. So it makes no sense. But we have four bridges that were tolled until 1911, the Brooklyn, the Manhattan, the Williamsburg, and the Queensboro Bridge, and Mayor William Gaynor. We, Alan, you remember when he removed the tolls? You were cheering. I remember seeing you. Oh, I was there. Yeah. I was there. I was there. And uh, Mayor Gaynor removed the tolls, and uh, as a result, the bridges nearly fell down in the 80s when I was commissioner. And uh, as a result, we've had an infusion of a lot of traffic that normally wouldn't use those bridges. So I propose lowering the tolls by $5 on all of those other bridges, introducing Easy Pass toll of about $5.50 to use the East River bridges and also to enter Manhattan South of 60th Street so we get the people from the north. And you think that'll fl- you think that'll actually happen? Uh, yeah. Hey, I've you only just told me about the told me about the budget at City Hall, and now you're saying let's lose a little bit a little bit money at the at the bridges. That's impossible. Well, you're well, creating a new kind of uh, bridge gate, you know, from call it Sam Schwartz gate. That's I, actually, actually, this is a very smart plan, Alan. What it does is it, you lose some money at some of the bridges, but the net effect of my plan is $1.5 billion a year. Anybody would make that investment. The return is far exceeds the cost of lowering some tolls. And as a result, the AAA, which had sued me previously on a proposal when I worked for Ed Koch, is working with us on this plan. We also take a quarter of the money and we give it back to drivers in improving roads and bridges. And you have the Motor Trucking Association. You have uh, groups on the left, groups on the right, the Staten Island Chamber of Commerce saying, hey, this makes a lot of sense. You have people that were council members against it, like Mark Weprin, that is now coming over to the side and saying, hey, we just want to be fair. We know we have to pay for the transit system, but let's have a system that's fair. And that's what I've come up with. And the truth is hardly anybody's listening. You know, that maybe they're listening tonight, hopefully, but I don't know. Well, did you see Cranes uh, this week? And you'll see that the people are listening. We've gotten a, a Listening and doing are two different things. Yeah. Yeah, well, hey, I, you know, I'm a big boy. I've been around a long time. I've seen things get done. And I'm not about to just say, hey, this is too hard and I can't get it done and nobody's listening to me. People are listening that count. We Let's, have a new assembly speaker, Carl Hasty, a very good guy from the Bronx, from your home borough. And uh, Carl has been one of the earlier supporters of a pricing scheme like this. How about something for the uh, pedestrians, like a pedestrian bridge here and there? Oh, I love pedestrian bridges. You I do? Proposed, I proposed a pedestrian bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan and another one that would go from – and stop off at Governor's Island – Another pedestrian bridge that would go from Long Island City, Hunter's Point area, to the new Cornell Technion campus on Roosevelt Island, 
and then tie into Midtown Manhattan. And a third one just at the border of Jersey City and Hoboken, two really blooming communities that would connect to Midtown Manhattan. But there are fights even on the Brooklyn Bridge where the fights between the pedestrians and those bicycle riders that that you like so much. Exactly. And that's why How do you we need stop to, that? to that's why we need to build more capacity. We're getting close to the capacity on the Brooklyn Bridge. We do have fights. Uh, we do have pedestrians and bike riders who have clashed. We have that on the Manhattan Bridge to a lesser extent because we've said the city has separated the bike riders and the pedestrians. Brooklyn's more violent, probably. The, the Brooklyn, if, if you're a, uh, a serious rider, you no longer ride the Brooklyn Bridge. Time for a personal question. Have you ever gotten any tickets? Have I ever gotten any tickets? Yes. I've for gotten, what? Doing what? What did you well, do? Well, I haven't gotten a have ticket done? in uh, a moving violation probably in well over forty years. I think the the last moving violation I got was an illegal U-turn uh, that I got, and and I got another one when I was in graduate school at Penn, which I didn't deserve. It was when cops were just pulling over hippies, and I got caught quickly. What happened with the illegal turn? Where was it? It was somewhere on, I think, under the FDR Drive, somewhere around that. And I made a U-turn, and there was a cop waiting for me. And since then, you've been clean? Since then, I haven't gotten a ticket. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for coming here and uh, telling us and sharing your 40 years of uh, traffic stories. They're pretty funny, and they're pretty good. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. And uh, talk to City Hall. Certainly will. You promise? Joanna Walper is our senior producer, and Doug Doyle is our executive producer. Conrad Sanguinetti is our engineer, and Gabrielle Gorwitz is our digital expert. If you'd like to hear any of our 80-plus audio biographies, all you have to do is click Conversations with Alan Walper and pick one you really like. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Walper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.